name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, coming to you from Athenry, County Galway, my isolation over since last Tuesday. And so I'm back here in the parish. Strange business, as you might expect. Um, empty church again. Back to full level five. You can hear the wind blowing outside. It's a wintry night. With any look, it's the last stage. With any luck, but who knows? It's heavy going for people, there's no doubt about that. We have fantastic parishioners who are backing us to the hilt, but uh, it's a funny place to be for all of us. God help those people who've lost their businesses and all the rest. And so, coming to you again with the Brendan option, courtesy of Immaculata Productions. We still haven't gone video. Uh, we're sorry about that. You have been deprived, you have been cheated of the sight of my angelic visage. Believe me, you're probably as well off. Uh, you won't be protected forever because we have the equipment and as soon as the lockdown is over, we will be inflicting a visual experience on you. I'm minded today to have in my head the whole idea of musical scores, you know, of, of, of uh, themes for films. I love the movies, as you know, and I take a, some interest in the scores or the, the themes, the soundtracks for the films because... I think they really help to make the film. They're a crucial part of telling the story. And telling the story is a theme I've dwelt on before and I'm coming back to it again today. And for good reason, as you'll see, with regard to today's gospel. Because, of course, we're on the feast of the baptism of the Lord. It's an incredible feast. And I suppose I could say one of my all-time favourite composers of themes for films would be Ennio, the late Ennio Morricone, who, who, who died just last year. He's a wonderful, wonderful composer. I'm thinking of Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, Once Upon a Time in America. Absolutely wonderful composer. I can barely make myself listen to the theme for Once Upon a Time in America. I find it too melancholy, too poignant. There's too much of a sense of broken dreams. I find it hard even to listen to it. And then we go on to John Williams, that famous theme for Jaws, you remember it, which was absolute genius and the simplicity of genius. Nino Rota, uh, the, if you can say this about a, a piece of music, the iconic theme, to mix my metaphors, the iconic theme uh, for The Godfather. Album and Nyman, the themes for Ravenous, uh, Cave and Ellis, Carter Burwell, the theme for Fargo, No Country for Old Men, The Proposition. There's so much here. Oh, the assassination of Jesse James. I can't remember who did that. I think it might have been Cave and Ellis. I think Cave and Ellis, who did the assassination of Jesse James. Carter Burwell did Fargo. And Cave and Ellis, I think, also did No Country for Old Men and The Proposition. But I'm open to correction on that. The assassination of Jesse James, I, I find that again so poignant, so, so desolate so full of a diminishing sense of purpose and a will to live. And indeed, it describes the disintegration of a powerfully charismatic personality played brilliantly by Brad Pitt. So score is used to create mood, to raise expectations. It can create an ominous mood, for instance. It plays on emotions. Somebody else bitterly complained about the two-part series Gods and Generals, about the American Civil War and about the sort of almost glorifying score 
that plays in respect of the southern attacks and manoeuvres and this kind of thing. You know, that it's a very pro-southern film, which is an interesting criticism. I think if you think about it, that a storyteller probably does the same. I think a storyteller probably does the same. Uses voice, glance, gesture, timing to tell a story. I used to be so frustrated when I was teaching in school and you were preparing kids to read. And it could be some kid who was just a, a wit, a really gifted joker and storyteller. And you put him up to read and he'd be wooden and proper and respectable and, and he would kill the reading. It takes so much craft just to be yourself. It takes so much courage just to be yourself. So much self-control just to not be controlled. It's an interesting conundrum in art. The trick, they say, of public speaking is to speak as if you were speaking to anyone, is to speak very naturally. And so the voice and all the rest of it combine to create a story. So it's not only words, but tone and whatever. All of that. The expectations of the listeners. The use of key phrases and key words. For though, for though, in Irish stories. Long ago, long ago. It's a ritual beginning to a story, to an old-fashioned kind of story. For though, for though, long ago, long ago. And here we find in the gospel today, we find the same rhetoric going on, the same storytelling going on, the same music going on. But our problem is that we don't know enough about the scriptures to hear the music. And we've heard the scriptures too often and we think we know them, but we don't know them. We don't know. We don't even know them on a scholarly level, half, most of us. Okay. And so often we just, we settle for an interpretation. We hear it so often that it just bounces off our ears. It becomes tragically, blasphemously almost, sacrilegiously. It becomes what the French call a langue de bois, a wooden tongue. I think they use that with reference to uh, jargon and particularly uh, what the Germans call bumpf, the sort of, you know, jargonized, massive documentation that bureaucracies produce. A wooden tongue. What a, an offense, however unintended, to the sacred scriptures. Because here's the thing. In the scriptures, we meet God as creator. God as creator and lover. God is creator, lover, and covenant maker. God is creator, lover, covenant maker, and covenant keeper. All in one. All at the same time. God is storyteller. Because it is God who is speaking in the scriptures. And I've said before, the quotation, the scriptures, are really one word. They are one word. Many words, but one word. God the storyteller. God the composer. God the conductor. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The authors of the Gospels are the musicians, but not the conductors, not the composer. And so we are listening to God coming to us through human instruments. And the storytelling techniques of the Hebrew authors and the conventions of storytelling from the time are naturally used. And so these we need to be aware of in the same way as, as you might to really appreciate music, learn, I don't know, to read music, to know what to listen for. This is God conducting his composition and telling the story through it. 
It's a famous gospel, the gospel of the baptism of the Lord. And it's from Mark, and I love Mark. Mark is bam, bam, bam. Mark has a headlong pace. He's a bit like Caesar. You know, Caesar's Gallic Wars, were, uh, they were a favourite text for teaching, uh, you know, beginner's Latin. Because the Latin in them is comparatively simple. Caesar was a soldier. And he was a man of plain, and although he was by no means simple, he was a very complex man and a very ruthless man. But he was a man of plain and no-nonsense speaking. And he intended these communications, these war diaries, to be accessible by everybody for his own political prestige and gain. In the same way, I'm not saying Mark was a man like Caesar, but Mark's diaries are workmanlike. Mark's gospel is plain spoken, quickly moving, but it's not without art. It would be a great mistake to assume that. And so right at the beginning of this excerpt from the gospel, the reading from the gospel that we had today, we have John saying that there is somebody coming after him and I am not fit to undo the strap of his sandal. That is our first cue. Now I've talked about this before. To undo the sandal of the master was the work of a slave or a servant. Rabbis would teach that those who followed the rabbi, or the master, should perform for the rabbi all of the actions that would be performed by a servant or a slave, by a manservant, with the exception of the removal of his shoes or sandals, because that was so menial as to be beneath a student. Now this is crucial because John is saying that the one that's coming is of such standing that to remove his sandal would be an honour so great that John, even John, does not deserve it. Now Jesus was to say that there was no prophet greater than John the Baptist and yet he does not deserve to undo the strap of the sandal of him, of the one coming. So this creates a mood straight away. You can almost imagine the trumpets, the drums, whatever instruments would be used, you know, to, to create a, a sort of expectant mood. And then it goes on, the gospel goes on, and it uses a phrase that always in the gospels bespeaks something hugely significant happening. It was at this time or you could translate it otherwise, in, in those days. It was at this time. And what follows a phrase like that is always going to be significant. So it moves on and on, with the music becoming more and more expectant, as it were. And we are told that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. So we are told that he comes from the very place from which it had been prophesied the one would come. And he's again, the music is moving on. The music is, mo is, is moving on. And was baptised in the Jordan by John. No sooner had he come up out of the water. No sooner had he come up. No sooner had he. Has the sense of immediately or at once. The Greek phrase is used, I think, 47 times in the Gospel of Mark. 47 times. And it's used to convey a sense of immediacy. The kingdom is here. Literally, heaven is erupting into the realm of mortals. No sooner had he come up out of the water than he saw the heavens torn apart. And here again you have... Now keep in mind the people listening to this gospel, the people reading it, would have understood these references. 
and would have enjoyed the storytelling craft, the musical genius of the storyteller. Next sign that's given. In Hebrew, water is Hamayim and heaven is Shemayim. In other words, the water's below and then you have the water's above. And so as he comes up out of the water, he tears the water below. The Son of Man rises from the waters and the waters above are torn by God. And what happens? The Spirit, and you remember again, the Spirit who breathed on the waters, who moved on the waters in Genesis, Ruah in, in Hebrew, the Spirit like a dove, like a dove. The dove is a divine bird, like the dove that Moses let out of the ark in Genesis 8 to see if they'd reach land. The Spirit like a dove descending on him. And then finally a voice came from heaven. And this voice from heaven is an echo of the voice of God. The Jews were well acquainted with this, this metaphor, with this, um, well, it's not a metaphor here, it's real, but with the image of a voice coming from heaven. And the bat gul, it's called in Hebrew, the, the daughter voice, the daughter of the voice of God. And this would have made perfect sense to the listeners. So the spirit like a dove descending on him and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. My favor rests on you. And again, that's obviously in Greek, but the beloved is almost certainly a Greek translation of the Hebrew, which refers to an only son. It is a phrase used in respect of an only son. So the music reaches a crescendo in the voice from heaven, the bat girl. The voice from heaven. It speaks that in this heaven and earth have been united. The heavens have been torn asunder. Remember the veil in the temple at the end of Jesus' life. The heavens have been torn asunder and heaven is pouring in to earth. And nothing will ever be the same again. Nothing. Behold, I make all things new. This is a novum. It is a new thing. Nothing will be the same again. It transforms everything. It transforms everything. This is a powerful reading and it's a great feast. Did Jesus have to be baptized to be rid of his sins? Jesus had no sins. He was the only perfect man who has ever lived. Jesus had no sins. He didn't have to be baptized. But he did have to be baptized for another reason. He volunteered to be, let's say. But... He found it useful to do it for another reason, which is the humility of God. Look, talking of humility of God makes no sense if you think of humility as meaning, you know, something being inferior to something else and lying on the ground and, and licking the ground. That's not what humility means. Humility refers to reality. We only need to have humility when we're getting away from ourselves. Humility is the loving embrace of reality. The humility of God. God is in love with humanity. I mean, the very meaning of the word Israel, as I said before, is he who turns the head of God. Who turns the head of God. God is in love with Israel. God is in love, as we will see now, with all of humanity. God's creative act was covenantal from the start. God intends our salvation. Heaven is pouring through the gap in the heavens, pouring into earth. 
And the divine conversation now includes us in a totally different way from the way in which it included us when the prophets were sent to us and all the rest of it. Okay, the divine conversation now includes us in a totally different way. The Old Testament hasn't been made redundant. It has been fulfilled and completed in this one man. Now, what does this mean for you? Because this is crucial. You don't feel like hearing this. This is on probably, you know, a pretty cold January day and January can be quite a depressing month and we're in the middle of a lockdown and we have a lot of problems and you may not be in any humour to hear this. The chances are is you aren't in any humour to hear this. One of the big difficulties that we have in church is that we're always using words like joy and praise and love and very often people don't feel joyful or loving or in a mood to praise. So the first thing I'm going to say to you is distrust your mood All the saints, all the mystics tell us the same thing. There's a time to work with the emotions, but look, if that's what's afflicting you, go with it. Don't take it on head on. That's the counsel of the mystics and the saints. Don't take it on head on or it'll become a huge battle which you lose because the imagination is so powerful. So just go with it. If that's God's will for you at the moment, that these words that I'm talking about, that this divine music that is trying to reach you, God is singing to you in the Gospels. He's singing to you. He's singing to you like a parent might sing to their child when they're trying to get them to sleep. He's singing a cradle song to you. Now, if you can't hear him, leave it at that. Just go with that. Accept that. Offer that to God. This is where I am. But God is singing to you. And you are, whether you know it or not, you are saved. A drowning man in the water may not be able to see or apprehend or have any sense of somebody coming to save him from a bit away. But if someone's coming to save him, they're coming to save him, no matter how the drowning man feels. And if you feel fed up and disillusioned and dry and cold and distant from this tremendous mystery that God has, for you, God, has taken the very texture of the heavens in his two hands and ripped them open. He would tear the veil of the temple in two and come out to you. He is coming down to you. He will descend into hell and come up to you. He is all around you. There is nowhere you are not close to his loving presence. If you've lost your faith, or you're losing your faith, I don't ask you to believe this yet, only to hear me and maybe to remember what I said. It doesn't matter what humour you're in. If he has made this decision, you are saved. You must accept it. If you don't accept it, he can't save you. It's not that he, he could, he could. But he, he gives us free will, he gives us choice. If you reject this, that's it. If you can even lift a finger to accept it, if you can even nod, if you can even twitch an eyebrow towards him in this, if you can manage a morsel of the gospel, if you can have just a glimmer of hope. Cardinal Newman said, I can't remember the number he used, was it? So many million difficulties do not amount to one doubt. Don't mistake your difficulties for your doubts. If you can manage anything here, to accept. The Spirit will do the rest if you can let him do it. This is the huge power you have. You can shut God out of yourself. You can destroy yourself. 
You must call it. When the voice says, you are my son, the beloved, my favor rests on you. Jesus, the only begotten son of God, you are adopted into the life of the Trinity. You are. You're a citizen of the New Jerusalem, a citizen of heaven. You're one of the chosen people. You're the white-haired boy, as we used to say in the West. Now, I beg you to just consider, if nothing else, if this is the most you can manage, to consider that your life, if you were to study it with a new curiosity and respect, may include all sorts of musical notes and indications that he has been trying to speak to you. And that's your homework for this evening. I'm just going to take what I said and I'm going to ruin it by calling it homework. But there you are. That's your homework for this evening. I want you to read your own story. Because listen to me, he's directing that too. He's singing to you. The score for the film that is your life is already written. He's singing to you. Could be something that happened, a way you felt. It could be something you read, different things at different points in your life. I want you to go back over your life and see whether it is not possible that you have missed all sorts of coded signs that preserved your freedom intact, but at the same time tried to make contact with you. He has such love for you and such respect for your freedom. If he were to appear to you, your freedom would be gone. Now, I can say no more than that. It's January and I'm not going to go on much longer. This is an absolutely amazing gospel. This is a wonderful feast. Things uh, are not going well in the States. And the States are important to us. The States are a huge part of our Irish story. That's not maybe of great importance to the States, although it's important enough in a way. Between the north and the south of Ireland, there are some over 40 million who claim Irish ancestry in the States. And we're, we're so saddened and in such grief to see the agony that the states are going through. I think good will come of it. I have tremendous confidence in the states. I think it's fundamentally a wonderful country. And I think good will come of this. But it's a real birth agony. And our, our hearts go out to our American brothers and sisters. The faith is alive and active and fighting back and on its way back in the states. And I think if we look at the states, we can take great courage for our own situation. Because even as it is torn apart with this division and profound debate about the nature of human beings and the nature of human life, even as it is torn apart by that, it still remains a a mighty, the greatest power in the world, a tremendous power. And I have no doubt but that God is working through that in his own way. What will come of this new presidency? I don't know. I don't wish anything but blessings and courage and holiness and blessedness on the new president. But I don't wish him success in some of his policies. I'm sorry to say that, but I don't. Or his vice president. And this is a crucial time because what happens in the States, you know, it's, it's going to, the ripples will go on and on. Don't be under any illusion about that. Irish people love, you know, sort of gently mocking the States, even while their daughters speak with American accents. For some reason, daughters more than sons. I don't know why that is. And while American-style fast food has taken over, Hollywood, everything. American culture, for good and ill, is hugely, hugely influential. 
We're all using Facebook. Many are using Twitter and all of that. But the battle in America is significant. And it is a battle. And I suppose what I'm going to say is it may seem like no consolation, but it is a consolation. It's a tremendous consolation. It's just a very hard one to listen to. Democracy is not meant to be entirely unifying. The whole purpose of democracy or central to it is the management of disunity. This absolute unity is a totalitarian dream. It's a fascist or socialist dream and those two philosophies are not far from each other. Just as conservatism is about the management of change, it's not against change because you can't be against change. Democracy is not against controversy and disunity. That's crazy. They're part of the nuclear fission that produces the energy of a great democracy. It's about the management of disunity. So the fact that there's disunity in the States is by no means any guarantee of its downfall. That's nonsense. It will be how it's managed. And we pray that it's, it's managed well for our part as believers, as Catholics. The fight goes on and it goes on in our own country. And so we have to have the courage to say, because this is the story. And we're taking part in the story, the story of which God is author. And in a mystical, in a mysterious, in in an ultimately incomprehensible way, we are acting as dramatis personae, as they used to say, as characters in this great story. And we must stand up for God. We must stand up for his holy teachings. Stand up for the value of human life. Stand up for the Christian understanding, which is the true understanding of the nature of human life and, crucially, its purpose. And so our job is to get people to heaven. Our job is to get to heaven. Our job is to be with God forever. I can say to you with absolute sincerity that sometimes I lose courage and sometimes I have difficulties, difficulties here, there, everywhere with the faith. But I don't doubt God by his grace and I don't doubt that it will come right in the end. And for each individual person, if they so choose, if they choose to accept the story, if they choose to accept God's will to save. But we must play our part. Now the music, it is certainly battle music. It's ominous. There are rolling drums, there are all the conventions are coming to play in this chapter of the story we're in. And in this democratic system in which division is not only allowed but encouraged and managed, we take our place in the division and we argue passionately for the rights of God. We argue passionately for the social reign of Christ. We argue with passionate conviction for the divine spark in human nature and for the eternal and divine purpose and future and end of the human being. We're not little puppets to be managed by people who I'm sure are good in their own way and certainly are great geniuses and have done great good, but I'm thinking of Mr Zuckerberg and Mr Darcy and the others who need to remember the rights of God. We talk about human rights all the time and that's a part of the story. But we only have those rights and those rights are only guaranteed because Two great divine hands, the hands of a workman, of an artist, of a poet, of a singer, of a great musician, the great creator and composer, 
took a hold of his creation and tore it open so that his love could pour down into the most dysfunctional and problematic part of his creation, into humanity. And that is what happens in Jesus Christ. And so the conductor is at his stand. He has mounted the podium. He has his baton in his hand. I suggest, ladies and gentlemen, that we take our places and pick up our instruments. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.